0: I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The
1: The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to The Nonprofit Reframe.
0: Happy Monday. Um, We are recording this on Monday, October 4th for release on
1: 11th, which is Indigenous Peoples Day. Oh, wonderful. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. And in real life, real time, happy day after Nia's birthday. Thank you. I'm so glad we get to
0: celebrate this for two episodes.
1: Yes, we're just going to draw it out. Awesome. (laughs) Well, um, how was the big day? Everyone wants to know their bated breath.
0: Uh it was amazing. So we got an inflatable bouncy house. We had a catered five-course meal. We rented a yacht. I mean, we just did it all.
1: Wow, rented a yacht.
0: Mm-hmm. Where would you take a yacht in Colorado? Just just in tiny little circles
1: to the res. <laughs> tiny circles at the res. Oh, so it sounds like you're really just um, looking forward to tonight's celebration. I am very much looking forward to tonight's celebration. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Um, we will report back, but we are going to the immersive Van Gogh experience.
0: The experience.
1: There's actually more than one. I'm not really <laughs> sure. I'm not sure which one we're going to. But- <laughs> That got super confusing, but yeah. whatevs. It's going to be amazing,
0: it'll, no matter it'll,
1: what. It's going to be an adventure.
0: Yeah. Hey, and we're going to Denver on a Monday night. How wild is that? Look at us young folks.
1: We're just living life. Um, did find out, though, a lot of restaurants close on Mondays. Yeah, yeah. I totally forgot about that, considering that, you know, restaurants haven't been a big part of our lives the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I forgot about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I ran into that issue a few weeks back in Boulder. It, it was a struggle.
1: <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll. F- I, I promise you won't go hungry on your birthday celebration. Thank you. That is
0: genuinely my rule. I'm like, if I'm hungry on a major celebratory day, something has gone wrong. Like yep. on Christmas Day, I don't know, this was like eight years ago maybe, my husband and I were supposed to fly out that afternoon um, from Michigan to Florida and our flight got canceled. Ugh. And we, I mean, it was all this back and forth, and part of it was because of our connecting flight. So we got another flight, but it was at, at an airport further away. So we just had to drop everything. It was like, thanks for the gifts, got a shower, got to go. And we just race out, and I was like, it's fine, we'll get food on the way. Forgetting it's Nothing Christmas Day. Open. Everything mm. is closed. We finally get to the airport. We've been so hungry for hours. And the only thing in the airport even open is like a Chili's to go. And so we had like (laughs) soggy salads. We're like, okay, it'll be fine when we get to Florida. We get to Florida. Even the like room services shut down for the night. It was the hungriest Christmas day I've ever had in my life.
1: Oh, that's such a bummer. I've definitely had that happen, though. I was driving from Denver to Ohio for Christmas, and we were driving um, on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. And less traffic. Great. But same thing. Like, couldn't find a place to eat that yeah. night. It's so awful. we're in just some, like, really tiny town in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. And we find – um a Chinese restaurant that was open. Nice. Yep. And it was packed. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> they have cornered the Christmas Day market. <laughs> they
1: have. <laughs> oh, funny. Well, we won't have any of those problems tonight. Great! Right. So we should hear about your weekend. Oh, I had such a busy weekend. Um, lots of softball lots of Halloween decorating which if anybody knows me knows that that's one of my favorite things to do and I just um am so proud that I have passed that on to my children they've been hounding me for weeks to get Halloween decorations up but then the best was um my kids are in uh, Girl Scouts and my daughter's troop did an overnight at the Denver Aquarium on Ooh. Friday night. Um, possibly worse sleep of my life, but <laughs> <laughs> it sucked so bad. It was like on a concrete floor at a little pad. It was horrible. 15 girls, young girls, uh, waking me up to have to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. But... Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but where we were sleeping, the aquarium went up and over our head. Oh. So especially when they turned the lights <gasps> off and I looked up, it, you couldn't see the glass. So it was like a shark was just floating <gasps> over my head. Was that
0: like cool or disconcerting?
1: No, it was so cool. Okay. It was so cool. So. I feel very fortunate that I get to have all these experiences via my daughters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I hope you've caught up on sleep since then. I have. Okay. I have.
1: Great. Yes. Great. Yes, yes, Grace. Yes. So, do you have a
0: birthday joke of the day? I do. Um, this comes from a friend. And I love this because we were colleagues for a number of years, and uh, really the only time I hear from her is on my birthday because she sends, um, like, e-cards, and she must Uh have an alarm set up, and so every year I get a hilarious e-card from her. Um, And this year it was all filled with vegetable-related puns. (laughs) Okay. I love it. So uh, thanks to Birthday Alarm for today's joke, how do you fix a cracked pumpkin? How? How? With a pumpkin patch.
1: Oh, I should have gotten that. So good. So good. Love it. Very apropos for the season, too.
0: Yes, I thought
1: so. I, I'm i uh,
0: attempting to get into the fall,
1: mm. embracing
0: that. I made some pumpkin bread out of a box. Like, let's not get crazy. I don't have time don't to actually bake. You need to give
1: that detail. You don't need to give that detail. I mean, come on. Well then, I feel like people are going to be like, "Wait,
0: Nia, you had time to bake?" An Can, entire I piece of bread. <laughs> Can I get your recipe? Can I get your recipe? Yeah, not not none of that's happening. Um, but I did do that, and then um, you know on star on your birthday you get a free Starbucks drink. Yes. So my husband's still asleep at this point. Yesterday morning, I get up, go and get yep. my free drink because I want a piping hot thing of coffee. They are out of like all the flavors right now. Really. Yeah, it's this, and you know, the continued shortage. They had a sign up on the drive-thru with like 12 different flavors that I couldn't choose
1: from. That's a bummer. It was wild. I mean, when Starbucks is affected, that's when you know it's really getting bad. It is definitely getting bad. Does this have to do with all of those um, cargo ships that I'm are wondering. waiting outside of California's? It could be. Doors. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's been weeks. And I feel like the changing of seasons is really related to seasonal flavors. So how am I supposed to know it's fall?
1: Without your pumpkin spice latte?
0: Yeah, I'm actually not a huge pumpkin spice fan. But, you know, they just shift. And yeah. now you're doing more cinnamon and ginger. And soon we're going to get into peppermint mocha season, which is like my mm, fave.
1: Mm. I hear you. I'm picking up what you're putting down.
0: I mean, I know, like, so first world problems.
1: (laughs) Starbucks doesn't have my favorite flavors,
0: but it's still a bummer.
1: Well, I mean, it just makes us realize how much we rely on this supply chain and how one delay can have ripple effects. That is very true. Well, what are we talking about today, Miss Wasink?
0: I am so excited that today we are talking about donor fragility. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um so this was interesting too. I was just doing a little little googling this morning seeing what else was out there. The only people talking about donor fragility in a nonprofit space are two people. Vu. Yep, that's one.
1: And who else? Uh, Edgar. Edgar Villanueva. They're the only two,
0: (laughs) which are probably our most quoted external sources on this podcast. Totally. So great that we're adding to the conversation. There's also a lot of literature on donor fragility from like a um, uh, organ donation standpoint, but that is not what we're talking about. (laughs) Nope.
1: Not talking about that. Not organ
0: donation. I clicked on something and I was like, "Whoa, this is super technical, like... I thought we were talking about fundraising, and then I realized, oh, they're talking about people like literally dying, and they're fragile because their body is fragile.
1: Yeah. No, not N- the same Not where thing. we are. No. No. Donor fragility so in a fundraising yeah. context. <laughs> so what what is that for all of the listeners who have never heard that term before?
0: So let, let's go back to like where it came from and how like fragility in the social context even came about. Um, Most people will probably point back to Robin DiAngelo with Mm -hmm. her White Fragility, um, which Mm -hmm. is a book about basically white folks' inability to grapple with hard conversations around race. Yep. So if we bring that into then fundraising spaces, what Vu and Edgar are really talking about is the same sort of thing. Donors who are unwilling, unable to have difficult conversations. It could be about like the subject matter that the organization addresses, Things like racism, social justice. It could be about how their funds are used. But anything that we think might make donors uncomfortable.
1: And then how we as nonprofit professionals try to um, make them feel safer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So like we totally play into that donor fragility by not pushing the conversations, by not Wanting them to feel uncomfortable. So we create these like, quote unquote, safe spaces for donors that really probably don't actually serve our missions or our communities that well.
1: Is this a huge difference between donor centric fundraising and community centric fundraising? Uh,
0: Yes. So in a donor centric model, you could see why you'd want to make them as comfortable as possible, of course. Right. Um, Let's not ruffle any feathers. Let's, uh, you know, coddle them like a little baby chick. Make sure they feel nice and safe and comfortable here. When we shift to focusing on the community and the community's needs, that means we can't coddle our donors so much.
1: Right. So what exactly are they saying about donor fragility? Um, How this is getting in the way of fundraising, how it's not in, it's ways in which we are fundraising that's not in line with our values.
0: Yes, all of that. For sure, for sure.
1: Um, I mean, I'm sure you can
0: think of it like it's that conversation of, oh, we want to do this thing. We want to make this change. But oh, how are our donors going to respond? Yep. Like that's where fundraisers are perpetuating it. I was was just talking to a a friend of mine and they are really shifting their evaluation and the messaging around that evaluation. Like, here's what your donation will do kind of stuff. Because what was happening before was a real like savior mentality. Like, your money is going to help raise these kids out of poverty, get them to college, and they're going to all become lawyers. Um, And she's saying, like, actually, that's not true. Uh, Here are all the little things we can do. And her board was like, oh, my God, how are we going to tell our donors this? That they actually aren't saving these kids. And she was like, yeah, but they never have.
1: Right. Right. Yes, exactly. Well, we always talk about how donors really like tangible things, Mm. right? That's why we break it down. $50 will pay for this. $100 will pay for this. But we know anyways internally that if somebody makes a $100 donation and we have on our website an example of what $100 could support, that $100 that they give us, we're not tracking that directly to that specific line item, right? right? Mm Mm-hmm. So we use it as a way, like a to have a tangible idea of what people are funding. Mm-hmm. But in essence, I always think we do ourselves a disservice because, again, we're reinforcing this um, hierarchy of we need your money for these things, and because we rarely ever, ever. In those um, examples, say that it's going to pay for staff time. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or it's going to pay for overhead.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, quick side note on overhead, by the way. Uh, Do you remember our first episode where we like really called out overhead? Yes. Which was with your favorite organization. Yes. You want to call – you put them on blast again. Do it. One more time.
1: Wait – Oh, with which organization? Oh, with uh, Charity Water. Yeah. Yeah, yes. that one. Uh,
0: so Vu. That
1: was almost two years ago. So it took me a while to remember. But yes, Charity Water. I did put them on blast.
0: Vu put them on blast this weekend as well.
1: No way. Yes.
0: Uh, I should have pulled this up. I'm pulling it up right now. Um, he says, hey, at Charity Water, you do amazing work, but your archaic, backward, and manipulative view on overhead is harming the entire field. Do better. <gasps>
1: Do you think Vu listened to no. our podcast? No, I do not. Do you think I informed Vu of those practices and no. that that's why? No. No, okay. you didn't. Uh, but
0: then he's, he's got some screenshots from their website that he uses. And then he goes on in the thread to say, quote, When I become a parent, I made a bold promise. 100% of the food I give my kids would be nutritious. That's because from day one, I got their grandparents to buy them all the candies and chips. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, because that's what they were doing. They were saying 100% of your donation goes directly to programming. Right. Which is impossible. Yeah.
0: I mean, it just doesn't even make any
1: sense. Because they were fundraising for operations separately through Mark Zuckerberg and like crazy-ass billionaires. Right. Which is not what 99.9% of nonprofits can do. Right. Right.
0: So part of donor fragility is not addressing these myths and playing into them sometimes. Right. I mean, I've certainly heard of nonprofit leaders continuing to uphold their overhead ratio. And I'm like, what the fuck you doing? You know that this isn't anything real. You know it's not helping your organization, but they feel like it's what donors want to hear. And so they keep saying it.
1: Absolutely. And they're still using it as this badge of honor. Right? Mm -hmm. 92 cents of every dollar goes directly to programming. So, eight cents, like what your overhead is 8%. There's no way. That's not, first of all, it can't be true. Mm -hmm. So, you're lying. And, second of all, you're just using that as a way to, because you think that's what donors want to hear and that they're going to give you more money. Right. So
0: there's like that myth-busting, just like nonprofits, how fundraising operates, fragility. But then there's also the fragility around the work that's being done. Yes. Like the social justice and racism conversations that need to be happening. Yes. Which definitely feels like um, a space that fewer organizations than I would have hoped to would be working in right now.
1: Well, I think it, I mean, it all ties back to a lot of different topics we've covered, like the DEI statements that Mm -hmm. came out after George Floyd, right? Mm -hmm. And every organization wanting to quickly put out their statement um, and talking about their commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion. But then what we brought up, when it's just a statement, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So are they actually doing the work, Mm -hmm. right? Are they filtering that work through their programming? Are they filtering that work through their fundraising? And are they worried, are they not, because they're worried about what pushback there will be from donors?
0: Totally. I I think in our conversation last year about that, I was saying that I was talking to so many boards and chief executives, and that was their biggest concern. How are donors going to perceive this? Right. I'm like, well, how are your program participants going to perceive it if you don't say this? Right. If you don't show your commitment to shift things. Right. We are so worried about our donors and forget the folks who are actually participating in our services in, in all these conversations. Absolutely. Um, I, I really liked this quote from Edgar in one of the articles I pulled. He said um, – or he encourages people to bring donors into the journey. Don't have donor fragility. People want to have these conversations, which is a big statement. I don't know that everybody wants to have these conversations, but I want to have them. (laughs) (laughs) I want my donors to have them. (laughs) And it's so, like, again, like you were saying, on this pod, we talk about all these interrelated issues. How can we talk about, wealth and power and philanthropy and not talk about racism and social justice and wealth and inequities. Right. Exactly. So the donor fragility and our willingness to perpetuate donor fragility as fundraisers is really the big issue.
1: Well, and we... Had the pleasure of just hearing him speak at the conference that we went to a couple weeks ago. And he brought up donor fragility. In fact, I was just looking back at my notes and I have that term circled. Mm -hmm. And you and I were texting each other being like, oh my gosh, that's so good. Um, And his point that it might mean losing a donor. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. And um, so again, it ties back to yet another theme of our scarcity mindset in nonprofits. And, oh my gosh, we can't upset anybody and lose their funding um, because then we won't have enough. Yeah. When really, um, and there's been a lot of different examples of this, I can't give one off the top of my head, but of organizations who have taken such a stand, maybe actually have lost a donor, Mm -hmm. but then gained so many more. Right. Because of people who saw what they were doing, respected what they were doing, and wanted to support it.
0: Yeah. Um, actually, I've got a great quote from Vu about that. Um, he says, some of them, meaning donors, some of the donors will leave. And we will all need to figure out the balance of when that is acceptable and when we can't afford to take the hit. And some donors may not be ready for this conversation yet, but may be later down the line. So we'll need to figure out what works for different donors. On the other hand, I think we failed many of our donors by underestimating them and their ability to engage in meaningful dialogue. Yeah, like by fundraisers playing into this donor fragility, we also assume all of our donors are rich white folks steeped in white supremacy
1: and they can't have these conversations. And that's just not the case. That's not the case at all. And I would go so far even to say even if they are rich white folk, you know, that have are steeped in white supremacy, um, they still might be open to these conversations and aren't maybe are not in forums where they're given that opportunity mm-hmm. right so yeah. so often because this is what we do for our work and these are the conversations that we're having we take for granted that this is a commonplace conversation and so you're giving them an opportunity to educate themselves to learn and to be able to then you know be able to voice their own opinion on it absolutely like this is too where I think fundraisers,
0: and I think we talked about this in our episode about um, fundraiser complicity, was that we have these this amazing opportunity because we have relationships with these donors, where we can actually be agents of social change within those relationships. And we can push these conversations further and really engage in some important dialogue that maybe others couldn't with these <clears throat> with these donors. So then it really leads to, okay, what does that look like? If I'm a fundraiser and I'm like, yep, I'm, I'm fighting against donor fragility,
1: how do we do that? Yeah. Well, it goes back to having internal support. Yeah. I can have that conversation as a development director with my donors if I know I'm going to have the support of my executive director. Mm-hmm. And I think where that's not happening, I mean, it, it, I hate to say it, it, it can be um, encouraged from the bottom up or middle up, but it needs to be supported f- from the top all the way down. Yeah, and um, and I know that a lot of fundraisers, again, they're they're just so nervous about rocking that boat, and what happens if I upset someone? Am am I going to be held? to blame for that right right? Mm -hmm. yeah so
0: what you're talking to though is really like all this internal stuff that has to happen like not only is our organization committed to these principles and these practices but like is your ed gonna stand up and be like yeah our dd did the right thing and we lost this gift that doesn't mean that they are a bad fundraiser this is part of our transformation as an organization and so yeah it has to be this organizational wide approach um and really understanding about what the implications of this are. Um, we don't want our, our fundraisers out there feeling like they're unsupported. They're going rogue. They're trying to push these conversations. And then there's pushback or lash outs on the other side. What do you mean you didn't hit your goal? You you lost four of our major donors because you started talking to them about racism. Right. Like I could see where that would go really poorly for our fundraisers. <laughs>
1: Right. And I feel like a great place to start is with your board, right? Most of your board members are donors anyways. I mean, they all should be to some extent. And that's a great place to start having these honest conversations um, because ultimately you're going to need to have them on board as well um, to help back up Mm -hmm. your ED. Right. So have you seen with boards before that – like, where those conversations haven't worked or where you've tried and... Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. What happened? Oh, gosh.
0: So I want to be clear. I'm not recommending people stay in organizations that aren't willing to address racism, right? Like, you got to give it a go. Try to have the conversation. If it doesn't happen, I don't think you should continue fundraising necessarily for that mission. Right. Um, but this was a really interesting situation because it... Uh, The CEO, who is a friend of mine, is a woman of color,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. and she has really tried to shift this organization into much more of a social justice centering approach, Um, because the work that they do is social justice. I think any of us in social justice spaces would agree. Her board did not. And uh, she had some board members who really saw the even the term social justice as like a political thing. Ooh. Like social justice equals liberal equals socialist propaganda. Right. And uh, so she had one board member in particular saying, we, we do not do social justice work. Um, and my friend, you know, tried to kind of call her into those conversations, tried to reframe the work they were doing and um, why it had to be done in a social justice context, actually. Um, and uh, couldn't happen board member left. Um, And there are probably two more board members who really need to leave. Ugh. Yeah. And so they're in the midst of this transformation process. Um, We were just talking about this last week, and she's really feeling the stress and strain of all of that. But they're also in the midst of a strategic planning process. And I was Mm -hmm. like, you know, that's a great place for these conversations to be happening because you're talking about not only your values, your mission, your vision, but also how they're propelling you into the future And Mm -hmm. so it also gives you this kind of facilitated uh, confine within Mm -hmm. which to have these conversations and not just, you know, kind of far flung in a board meeting without the support of having these kinds of structures. And so I'm really hopeful that through their strategic planning process, it will become much more clear and they will have value statements that address these. Um, And then it becomes an opportunity to have this discussion with the board of, here are the values that our organization has put forth. Therefore, we must be doing these things. And if you
1: don't agree with these values, there's the door. Right. Well, it goes back to what we were talking about um, with donor-centric versus community-centric. And, you know, a lot of these donor-centric principles have been around for a long time and work. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, if the end goal is to get the check, it works, yeah. right? Um. But that's the question that you have to ask yourself is um, what means more to us as an organization? Is it just getting the check or is it actually getting the check while still operating within our values and our principles, staying aligned and having that integrity? Yeah. And I, I think that that's a hard decision. Mm-hmm. For organizations. Yeah. It feels and like it, takes it shouldn't time. be. I know. It definitely shouldn't be. But it's just like what you were talking about with that board, there's a transformation process. Mm-hmm. And that's gonna be the hard part, right? You're you're gonna have a shakeout of mm-hmm. people who don't agree or um aren't on board with it. And that's metamorphosis of sorts is what's going to be difficult. But if you can get to the other side and then have um, those guidelines like you're talking about through your strategic plan, um, through your mission, vision, values, then I I feel like the rewards on the other side are going to be so much greater. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So let's assume we do all of that, right? Our mission, vision, values, talk about the amazing... Ways that we are transforming the world. The board has had these conversations. They're on board. Yes, we are anti-racism. We are about social justice.
1: Now what does it look like with our donors, though? Right. (laughs) You mean, like, what are our donors saying? Or what kind of donors are we attracting? or What
0: are we doing as fundraisers to get over this donor fragility that we have been coddling for so long?
1: Yeah, that's when we're saying, I'm sorry, you don't get to cross this boundary and choose who we give tenure to because your name's on the School of Journalism. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, And I think for probably most of our listeners, it's done in much more subtle ways. It's like, what words are you using in your appeal letter that signal this shift? Um, You're using asset framing, of course, in all Mm -hmm. of your fundraising, getting away from deficit language. Um, You're maybe even pushing to have deeper conversations with your major donors
1: yes and hopefully sharing this process with them yeah right so it's not something that is just brought to them overnight like they should be seeing this transformation too and hopefully you're taking them along with you
0: yeah it's like edgar's quote donors want to go on this journey with us
1: exactly And I've had conversations – I mean, those are the best when you know that you've built a relationship enough that you can have those honest conversations. Where I've talked to donors and said, um, you know, and we've mentioned it on this podcast before, of unrestricting their gift. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, I want you to know that 80% of our budget is paying staff. Mm -hmm. And that's really where we have the greatest need. And we need to be able to keep our amazing – Staff in order to do this work Mm -hmm. and so while you like this specific program of ours and that's great and your gift will definitely support that because your gift is helping us you know keep paying at a rate that allows us to hold on to staff retain staff and it's part of the bigger picture and not just like your money is going to this Mm -hmm. one specific thing And so now those donors will come back to me and they'll say, oh my gosh, I'm so excited about the work that you're doing in this program. I'm going to give you this money. Don't worry, Brittany. It's unrestricted. (laughs) (laughs) But I do want you to know that it's because of this program that I'm giving. Totally. Great.
0: Love that. Yeah. Well, I think one of the other important pieces is this is also about like transforming your marketing and communications. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. For sure.
0: So ensuring that you all are out talking about these things. Um, I was part of um, the Women's March this past weekend in Longmont. Great. Um, and there were a few nonprofits represented, and it was great. But then there were some that weren't. Um, and this is not me calling out nonprofits for not sending staff on a Saturday to another event. Um, but it, it it did kind of strike me of, like, who is really leaning in on these conversations? Who is stepping up and talking about this work? Who's recognizing the intersectional experience of people who are talking about reproductive rights? Um, And and so for me, as somebody who wants to be supporting social justice causes, the one the organizations that were there, I think more fondly of. Yeah, because I'm I'm seeing them in this this fight uh, alongside these other organizations. Um, And so it is it is it's not just your fundraiser. It's not just your board. It's across everything, ensuring that you're really showing up and talking about the right stuff and talking about it in the right way and leveraging your platform across all of your stakeholder groups to engage them on these important to- topics.
1: And you're you're brave enough to take a stand knowing that um, you might have people that push back. And so when somebody calls you out for it and I I did I was working with an organization who came out with a really strong response um to uh like in support of this racial justice reckoning that we've had the last couple of years and it was an organization that was not known historically for taking those kinds of stands and um, had some supporters that came back and said, who are you? And why are you, you know, trying to tell me what's right and wrong? And um, why are you getting political over mm-hmm. a topic that's not political? Right. You know, it shouldn't be political. It's human. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I find that that's what happens, too. So many times I've worked for places that you're just – so scared of somebody speaking out against your organization that you're not willing to make that stand when you need to. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, One of the articles I found from, I think it was an interview with Edgar, talked about how addressing donor fragility from a fundraiser standpoint could help address fundraiser burnout. Mm. It took me a minute to like wrap my head around it, but I really like the framing. I mean, basically, we're so focused on the comfort of donors, right? As fundraisers, we, we've created this donor fragility or at least perpetuated it. So if we start to shift away from that, and I'm sure for our fundraisers, these values align with the organization and with the work we're doing. That's why we work there. We're able to center the work. We're able to center the community and not the donor. And that is empowering in and of itself.
1: A hundred percent.
0: We've talked about how fundraisers sometimes like they feel four steps away from the mission and the programs. Yep. And so it can be hard to be like, OK, I'm raising money that's going to help do this, which is something I care about. Well, if we're doing that through fundraising, if we're having these conversations with donors, if we're pushing this information out, We've taken that power back as fundraisers. Yep. Yep. I mean, even just reading that, I I was getting chills and being like, oh, my God, maybe I'd still be a
1: direct fundraiser if if I had realized that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. And if you had the backing and support with that. Right. Right.
0: Yes. I think that's like one of the big messages out to listeners. If you're in an organization where you're feeling like you don't have that support, where folks aren't ready to have those conversations, It's got to feel really hard.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I really feel for you. Um, You know, we've been having some of these um, like Zoom meetups for people doing community-centric fundraising or who are really invested in that. And I just kept hearing from more and more fundraisers on this call of like, yeah, I want to do it, but my CEO isn't supportive. Exactly. Yeah, I've been talking about how we can actually shift these things. But I also don't have time to do that while I'm planning a three hundred dollar plate gala exactly (laughs) like oh gosh these fundraisers like they just need the support they need leadership to be pushing these conversations forward and this this is the true fulfillment of your mission you got to be willing to speak these values um both internally and externally
1: well and i had sent you i was just looking it up again um that article about the woman who is creating a film about this. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the title of it is I Won't Be Quiet About Healing from Nonprofit Harm. Yeah. And I think that we... Um, We don't, we underestimate that. I mean, she writes here, it wasn't until I left the nonprofit industry that I couldn't, I could fully process the ways in which I was harmed by it. I was in a state of constant burnout and I wasn't even aware of how burnout I was because productivity culture had ingrained itself so deeply in me that I believed there was something wrong with me for being so tired.
0: Mm. Then
1: there was the tokenism, the microaggressions, the insubstantial paycheck, and the general pay disparity. Oh. I know. That's awful, but reality. Total reality. And um I think we need to take ownership of that within mm-hmm. the sector.
0: Mhm. Yeah, this is part of our continued reckoning as nonprofits.
1: Yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, we want to hear from you. Have you heard this term donor fragility before? Um, Have you heard about it other than from Vu and Edgar, even (laughs) though those are great places, but love to know who else is talking about it? Um, Please
0: let us know. You can email us, nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. You can also be following us on Facebook and Instagram, except not right now because they're both down and it's really weirding out my Monday. Um, We are at nonprofitreframe.
1: And don't forget to support your local nonprofits. Give and give generously. Thanks, folks.
0: We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com and Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.